the presidents, I want to thank you for the very generous introduction, and you are too kind. I would not consider myself a historian. I would consider myself a history writer and a history lover, just like anybody can. Uh, there are plenty of good books. In fact, we're going to be talking about some good historians today. And as everyone may know, that there is a website, which is where I blog. The name of the website is statutesandstories.com. That's all one word, statutesandstories.com. And I, I have to congratulate you guys on some very conservative, and as we know, this is a very conservative radio station. So very no, 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 only conservative show. Very conservative show. Because the FCC is listening. I have. I would love to find a couple of liberals to talk here, but they, they shy away. They can't because, hold their own. Yeah, they can't hold their own to the two concrete conservatives. It, which is where I point out that the statutes and stories is neither conservative nor liberal. We just try to be historical. Yep. And here we're going to talk about the politics going back to the time of the, the founding generation. So that, that's a little bit of background about statutesandstories.com. And I learned something tonight listening to you both, that uh, we have Victory Vidal. So we, we have to... Yeah, Victoria's Vidal. Oh, my God. I was going to call him uh, Voluptuous Vidal, no, but no. since we're both men, we can't do that. Because his wife suggested that name, Voluptuous no. Vidal. So I said, no, honey, I'm sorry. It's my show. It's Victorious Vidal. Because he's always right, you know, because he's an attorney. Oh, that makes you both right. Now I'm screwed. You're in trouble, Manny. Yeah, I'm just a poor layman. Okay, getting beaten down. Yep. All right, gentlemen, take it away. So what I propose to do tonight, we're going to have all kinds of opportunities to talk about some historical trivia, because as we said, today is President's Day. But I think it makes sense to begin by talking about some historians and the construct or the umbrella, if you will, under which some of these political parties have emerged and have, uh, have, have sort of uh, operated over time. Because just to know that President X was from one party or President Y is from a different party, and many of these parties don't exist anymore, it's useful to know what were those parties trying to do and what did those presidents stand for. And you'll see that these, these different ideas over time have evolved. So the, the first historian I want to mention is Henry Adams. And the name Henry Adams is an important name from historians from their standpoint because he is related to, to our president. We can talk about that. But Henry Adams came up with this pendulum model of history. And his pendulum model sort of understood that the pendulum would swing in two different directions. Uh, one direction, and so they can see the motion as I'm waving my hand back and forth. So in his mind, you had this pendulum swinging between centralized power, and then I'll ask you what party you think that was, versus more of a freedom and less centralized power, more state power. So maybe that's the first question I'm going to ask you, uh, Manny and, and Ed, under Henry Adams' pendulum model, what were the two parties or the two ideas? is that he thought there was this equilibrium back and forth between those two extremes. You know, age before beauty, please, Victoria. Okay, the, the Federalists were more of the centralized power, national improvements, infrastructure. That was Hamilton to Lincoln, and I think Henry Clay in between. That's right. The more decentralized states' rights, you might say, would be Jefferson, probably Madison, uh, and that's the, Dem the the Big D Democrat Party founded, formally founded by Jackson. Oh, that's exactly right. So Henry Adams, who is the son of John Quincy Adams, and he they later became the ambassador to London under Lincoln during the Civil War. So he had this notion of what's called the second law of thermodynamics, that history could be analyzed scientifically, and they had this pendulum swinging back and forth. And before we get into another model of history, I want to lay out three or four historical trivia questions, because you may get people uh, texting you or, or uh, not calling in, but otherwise they're trying to get through on... Well, let, pe let people know that you can listen to us. Uh, let your audience know, Facebook Live, you got to go to my name, it's Manuel A. Cambo. There's two accents on the O, so there's two O's with two accents. It's an open, it's an own 
Open Forum Facebook page. It will be transferred over to the Blink Radio Facebook page as an archive, so you can listen to it again later in the day if you're not around now. So let people know that if you want to listen to Adam, he comes with us 7 to 8 every Monday and tells us the wonderful stories of colonial America and the founding of this nation and the great ideal yeah, and, secrecies of its framers. And you know, Adam, uh, Henry Adams is, is a very interesting guy. I know this is President's Day, but uh, his job in London as ambassador under Lincoln and Secretary of State Seward was very important because if, if Britain had sided with the Confederacy, we might have had a different civil war. And his, uh, you're absolutely right. And the Adams family, starting with his, I have to track back how many generations, but starting with John Adams and also John Quincy Adams and then Charles, uh, I think, I don't remember the, the middle name, but the, the, that family focused on diplomacy and mm-hmm. uh, they understood, and I'm agreeing with you, that, that yep. had, had Britain decided to, to side with the South and the South was expecting them to side with the South because Britain was dependent upon cotton. Yep. So the war could have been a lot longer and who knows, may have ended differently. Yep. So let me lay up, and people, if they go to Manny's Facebook page, and Manny, you should mention it again before before I get to, through all the questions. Yeah, it's my it's my birth name, so it's Manuel A. Cambo. But the, uh, to make sure that you have my ID, my last name has an accent on the O. On Facebook, I have two O's, two accents, so you know it's me, because there are phishing softwares out there with false IDs. So mine has two accents on the O. And that you know for sure is my Facebook wall. And it has your wonderful mug on the on the Facebook live picture. Face. <laughs> yes, it has. Yeah, it has my legal Im- immigration passport. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Here, here is the first question, which I learned as I was preparing for tonight. So the question is, which founding father is in the very famous picture of Washington crossing the Delaware? And uh, the second part of that question is, what painter, and I didn't know this either, what painter painted that famous picture of Washington crossing the Delaware? And uh, this individual who is holding the flag as Washington's crossing the Delaware uh, later becomes a president. So what president was in that other picture with Washington as they both crossed the Delaware? And uh, who was the painter? And I, again, didn't know this either. Who was the painter who painted that picture? And it was a 1851 oil on canvas. And if people can accurately... Uh, text you the answer or email you the answers, then they can ask questions of their own, which is exactly what WLRN does when they do trivia questions. Oh, okay. wait a minute. No marketing other well, community the radio. The junior audience. officer was James Monroe? No, John Thurmble was the artist. Okay, that's good. But I'm saying the junior officer crossing with Washington, was pro- if he became a president, it was probably James Monroe. There you go. It was Monroe who was on that boat with Washington crossing the Delaware. And was also with Washington at various points during the during the Revolutionary War. So that's an excellent answer. But don't give too many of the answers yet, because some of, some of the folks may want to text in. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Here, here are a couple more questions, and this is something else that I think is very interesting. We refer to the White House as the White House, but who was the president who gave it that name, who named it the White House? And uh, this was someone that's more recent, so not one of the founding generation. And what was it called? So it's a two-part question. What was it called before they changed the name to the White House? So that's uh, the next two questions. I got to say it was Barack Obama, just for the no, joke. Just no. for the joke. I think it was called... You to tell you? No, no. Well, hold on. See if you get okay. some text so people uh, have some suspense. They can they can research it if they don't know the answer. And uh, the other question that we'll tee up for discussion is who was the first president? Let's see. I got a, I got a, a lot of good answers here and got a little, got a, a mix around the time frames. 
So who was the president, this is an easy one for many people, elected four times, and the 22nd Amendment changes that. So who got elected, and the only president elected four times? Oh, I can tell you that. Well, uh, uh, we can't say it, right? Yeah, so we'll, we'll see if uh, people text in some answers. So let's now move on to our second historian, as we're trying to understand the framework under analyzing political parties and how to put the different you know, politicians, the different politicians over time, uh, into the different uh, into the different boxes. So the next politician, and we may talk about his family background also, is Arthur Schlesinger Sr. So Arthur Schlesinger Sr. reacts to Henry Adams' pendulum model, and Schlesinger Sr. says that I disagree that uh, it's between centralization versus more of a uh, less uh, a view of less importance of centralized power. And he, he focuses and he tries to get scientific also to say it's merely every 16 and a half years on average that instead of having a pendulum swinging back and forth, he describes it, and we can agree or disagree with this terminology, as a, a swing between a liberal period and a conservative period. And for him, he would define a liberal period as, an, in, again, this is not our you know, the terminology we use today, but for Schlesinger, Arthur Schlesinger Sr., the liberal period, when you go back and forth between these periods, was an increase in democracy in his, in his mind, uh, whereas conservative was an object of containing democracy, and he defined democracy as social, economic, and political. Uh, so this is how Schlesinger viewed it, and he didn't think it was a pendulum back and forth. He thought it was more of a spinning uh, cyclone or a spinning gyration motion, because you wouldn't go back to where you left off. A pendulum starts on one end, goes to the other. He thought it was expanding outward as the as the cylinder spins around, or the hurricane, or however you want it, the tunnel spins around. So that's how Schlesinger understood the way history was working, and he was able to point to every 16 and a half years you had this uh, this change, and he would with different political parties in the spiral where he would position them. And then his son, who is Schlesinger Jr., and we can talk about uh, he was involved with the political administration, uh, which may be a question later, but Arthur Schlesinger Jr. Hey, geographer of the Kennedy administration. That's right. So he's part of the Kennedy administration and is an advisor. So hey, he's a Harvard-educated historian. So Schlesinger takes the position, and he tries to build on his father's interpretation of historical trends. In fact, I have the book in front of me. So Schlesinger Jr. writes the book called The Cycles of American History. And he tries to distinguish between using different terminology because he didn't always agree with his father. That uh, he rejects this idea of the, the pendulum. He rejects the idea of of uh, his father's you know, political terminology of liberal versus conservative. And he tries to describe the difference between swinging back and forth, if you will, between public purpose versus private interest. That one party or at one time one sort of uh, you know, initiative is uh, to help and extend the public interest, and the retrenchment occurs, or the more of the conservative dynamic is more of a focus on private sector or private interest. So that's Schlesinger and his father and Henry Adams. And that'll give us a little bit of ability to uh, place the different politicians and how they fit in these, in these cycles of American history. And, and I'll point out to you that in that book that I just referenced, which is the cycles of... Sorry, oh! Oh boy, did we have the K the CIA got you back for bad mouthing the military industrial complex? Uh, you know what? That yep. sounded like sabotage of constitutional history. Yes, this is for the first time. The CIA I, clearly. I have a feeling this is what happened. He got tweeted. Oh, what yeah? do you think? Trump tweeted. Uh, Trump tweeted indirectly, oh. and it knocked him off his rocker. He's, I believe he's in an airport terminal calling us, calling in, and I think his entire uh, setup completely fell apart. But anyway, we'll be back well, with Adam Levinson in a moment.
Are you back? I, I'm back. Sorry about that. That's what happens when you try to use a landline because it's better, better signal, I suppose. So then thank you for your patience with that. It will not happen again. Well, in the meantime, um, uh, Mr. Vidal tried to take over the whole show, and I had no. to put a stop to it. <laughs> no. Mr. Victorious tried to get it in the way. All right, continue. So Stay away. What, what we're doing as we just build into some of the historical context is that the, the book, The Cycles of American History, uh, starts off in its introduction talking about how America is really an experiment. And if you look at Washington's inaugural address, and I can quote some of it to you, he indicates that, uh, and I'll quote, he says, it's an experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. And as a matter of fact, Hamilton, in the first Federalist essay, and a lot of the listeners will know that Hamilton wrote, along with Madison and with Jay, in the neighborhood of 85, in fact, exactly 85 Federalist essays were written by those three founding fathers. So Hamilton, in the very first paragraph of the first Federalist essay, and I'm going to quote you from Hamilton, he describes that, that we have a choice, we have an opportunity when we go in this uh, excursion of, into creating our own democracy, which was going to be the largest democracy in the history of the world, because it would extend all the way from the northern colonies all the way to the southern colonies across 13 states. So he says that this is our chance, by their conduct and example, to decide the important question whether societies of men are really capable of not establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. So he's trying to set out this opportunity that we have where we create our own destiny, and uh, that's what Hamilton sets forth. And then you, if you look at different, different presidents over time, and I like to look at and read some of the inaugural addresses and some of their farewell addresses to see what they, over time, what they say is important, what their goals and objectives are. And this is where I put in a plug for statutes and stories. So I posted, I think it was uh, yesterday, um, an opportunity for people to go to the website and, and read excerpts from different farewell addresses and, and different speeches by the presidents where they pick up on this theme about how we're doing an experiment in democracy. And really that's what President's Day is. It's to pay homage and respect to the presidents and uh, what they've accomplished and what their goals and objectives were. So that's posted on uh, on the blog on statutes and stories. And we'll give you some more quotes. So uh, Washington t talks about how, uh, again, I said they, this is an experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. And then Wilson talks about how uh, he looks, and he's quoting now, he, he looks up at the new federal organization as an experiment and thought, uh, when we're talking about the founding fathers, and thought it likely might not last. So Wilson recognizes that the founders were not sure that this would work, and there were times when it may not have worked. So that, that's a little bit of the backdrop about this is an experiment in democracy, and uh, you know, I think we can all agree that that experiment has, has brought us a long way. So uh, where do we start with the first political party? And uh, the first political party Ed touched on earlier was the Federalist Party. And and a lot of historians refer to the Federalist period as the first party system, and who was up against the Federalist Party, and, and you mentioned it, Ed, on the other side of the Federalist Party was the Jeffersonian Party or the Democrat-Republican Party. Yep. Now, please define for the audience the differences between the two, because it's very important, because I'm sure that, uh, people listening now are so bent on Democrat and Republican parties. Please let the audience know how different they were back then. Right, and it's important to understand. This is at the time of Washington, and I like to say, what was Washington's party? And do you guys want to take a stab at what Washington's party was? Wasn't he a Whig? No, he was a Federalist. So we, we could really debate what Washington was. Yeah, he, I think he, he tried to hold himself yeah. out as non-political. Right, right, right. And sort of above the fray. Yeah, because he, yeah, he was the first, but he right. was, no, but he he was, was not really, a Whig. He was a Federalist? Yeah, the, the Whigs were not there yet. 
Yeah. So I would agree that uh, if you had to give him a characterization, he was a Federalist because he sided more often than not with Hamilton, and right. Hamilton started the Federalist Party. So to answer Manny's question, and we'll compare it to the Democrat-Republican Party or the Democratic-Republican Party. So what was uh, Hamilton all about as the founder of the Federalist Party? And the answer is that Hamilton, we've talked about this before, go to statutes and stories, we've got a dozen or so posts about Hamilton, but that he was interested in assuming or taking over the state Revolutionary War debt. The states right. didn't start the war. He wanted to pay off their wars and pay war pensions. He also wanted to pay off the debts of the Continental Congress and pay the soldiers who hadn't been paid and pay the debts that were owed, not just the soldiers, but the foreign treasuries, foreign countries, and to investors who gave money to the, at the time, the Continental Congress. He also wanted to use taxes in order to pay off those, those responsibilities and those debts. And part of those taxes, if not most of them, would come from tariffs. That's how he would raise his money for his financial program. And he needed a Bank of the United States, which would then take those taxes and help invest those taxes and spend them through lighthouses and, and roads, postal roads is what they called it, uh, because that was something that was allowed under the Constitution. Yep. And uh, this was Hamilton's view of a strong, muscular, multifaceted program of restoring the federal government, uh, taking those debts, paying them off with the regular interest, and I'm oversimplifying, but at 6% interest, and, uh, and it worked because you had a tremendous amount of economic growth once they got their act together under Hamilton and Washington and the Federalists. So who was opposing Hamilton and the Federalists? And everyone knows the answer here. You have Jefferson and Madison were the two main leaders of the Democratic-Republican Party. So you can sort of compare one with the other. The Jeffersonians uh, did not like the Bank of the United States. Why? And we've talked about this on other nights, because the Constitution nowhere says that you can have a Bank of the United States. Sure, you can tax and you can spend and you can um, have a currency, but nowhere does it specifically say Bank of the United States. And for the first hundred years, this was a big battle back and forth between the parties. And uh, this gets to the, the muscular, as I said, Hamiltonian view of federal authority, that as long as it's not excluded by the Constitution, and I know you debate this on a regular basis yes. with other shows, but under the Hamiltonian view, and we'll give the Democrat-Republican view also, so under the Hamiltonian and maybe Washington view, because Washington agreed with Hamilton, it was okay because the necessary proper clause says that if it's necessary for an express purpose, Hamilton sort of refers to it as the elastic clause, and he writes a very detailed opinion to Washington, because Washington gets opinions from his cabinet. He wants to have the, the, the views of of his advisors, and he wants to reflect and uh, think through the consequences of all the decisions he's making. So he does agree with with, uh, with Washington. I'm sorry, Washington agrees with with Hamilton on the on the, the constitutionality of a federal debt program and the constitutionality of the Bank of the United States. So now let's compare that with the the states' rights view of uh, Jefferson and Madison, and uh, they did not want to see such a strong federal government. They had more of a strict constructionist policy. They were more inclined to favor the yeoman farmers and to favor uh, farmers in general over bankers and industrialists, yeah. and they opposed the big central government. They opposed taxes, and they, they were more laissez-faire uh, from the standpoint of the early Democrat Republicans. And that can I've got a great quote that I found where Jefferson writes this in 1799. So this is after he'd, he'd been president. I'm sorry, this is before he becomes president. He writes this. So two political sects have arisen within the United States, and back then they didn't call them parties. They called them sects. S-E-C-T-S. Two Sex. political sects have arisen within the U.S., the one believing that the executive is the branch of our government with the most need support, or which most need support, the other the, that, like the analogous branch in the English government, 
it is already too strong for the Republican parts of the Constitution, and I'm apologizing that he uses lots of semicolons separating these big, long sentences. That's the way Jefferson wrote here. He goes on to say, and therefore, in equivocal cases, they incline to the legislative power. So the Jeffersonians incline to legislative as opposed to executive powers. The former of these are called Federalists, sometimes aristocrats or monocrats. So here he's calling the Federalists aristocrats or monocrats. Monocrats. And sometimes Tories, so these are the terms they would throw around those days, sometimes Tories, after the corresponding sect in the English government of exactly the same definition, the latter, so now he's talking about himself and Madison, are styled Republicans, Whigs, Jacobins, anarchists, disorganizers, etc. These terms are in familiar use with most persons. So, Annie, when you mentioned... No, uh, we thought we were caustic today. No, no, no. <laughs> These, but these but you know, were... Adam, uh, they really reflected different economic interests. Hamilton reflected the city's uh, commercial interests, manufacturing interests. Well, he was more of a visionary of a global. Well, but but no, but Jefferson reflected more of an agrarian interest and the interest in in having agriculture be the main business of America. And this goes back and forth because Lincoln was a big supporter of agriculture, and he was such a big supporter he created a U.S. Department of Agriculture. So. These things go back and forth, but I think a lot of it was that they had different economic uh, foundations for the two parties. Uh, Hamilton was New York, commerce, uh, shipping, manufacturing, and uh, Jefferson and Madison were farmers from Virginia, plantation owners. Who were already, they were exporters, they were exporters. Oh, yeah, no, they were businessmen, but they were more agricultural. Now, tell me, Adam, uh, do you have any feeling for why the first... Bank of the United States failed ultimately. It did, didn't fail. It just I'm not sure it failed. It had a limited time period. Right, I don't twenty know years, twenty or thirty years. Twenty and years. Jackson, and Jackson didn't renew. No, no, no. Chart. Twenty years, and it, and then it, it was it, it expired, and it was renewed. So there was a second, Correct. and the second was the one that Jackson did not renew. Right, because he had that argument with uh, um, Biddle, Emory Biddle, yeah, in well, the election. He thought that it had too much power. And for a long time, uh, currency, paper currency in the U.S. was issued by commercial banks, private commercial banks, so long as it was backed by gold or silver. And what, what did what did what, what problem did Jackson have? With he did, that? he didn't want the Bank of the United States to be interfering with that. He wanted the currency to be issued by individual banks, private banks, so long as they had gold or silver to back it up. So, for example, the word Dixie comes from New York uh, cotton traders who got uh, $10, $10 bills from uh, New Orleans, and it was Deeks is uh, 10 for in French, and that's why they called the uh, Southerners Dixie. Wow, Dixie. 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 That was the New York traders. You know, traders, before the year of political correctness, used to have the, the most uh, uh, you know, uh, out, outrageous jokes of all kinds, but that was what their joke. They called it the South Dixie because that's where they got the Deeks. Uh, and then how'd that morph into becoming the Dixiecrats? Dixiecrats. Well, that was That's the, 1948. Okay. Anyway, go ahead, Adam. Continue, uh, Adam. We're going to flesh out the remainder of that period. And by the way, historians also break, break down different periods of time because they classify time periods. This is the first party system, and it's the first party system because this is the, the first political parties. And we'll talk next about the second 
party system, which is going to start in around 1824. So just fleshing out the first party system, uh, the Federalists are siding with Britain, uh, and Washington wants to be neutral, and the Republicans or Democrat Republicans admired the French because they thought the French, and we've talked about this before, were continuing the American Revolution in Europe. So the French are, are I should say, the Democrat Republicans are pro-French, and uh, there's also a difference between uh, how big you want the military to be. So the Federalists, which is consistent with their view of a strong federal government. So that's the federal system under Hamilton versus Jefferson Madison. And they give some more trivia questions. So if we didn't get any answers to the questions from before, you want to try to give some of those answers that we laid out earlier? So who labeled the White House the White House? And what was it called before we called it the White House? It was called the Executive Mansion. Uh, and who called it the White House? It probably was James Madison because it was burnt down during his time. Then it was painted white. Okay, that, that's a good answer, a good try, and that makes sense, the, the reasoning. But it was only, it was much later, it was Roosevelt who called it the White House. Really? And uh, it was, so what, what burned down was not the White House, it was the executive mansion that burned down. That was the British in the uh, War of 1812 burned down the White House. Yep. That's a logical uh, logical answer. So here's the, an answer to another question. So uh, what were some of the other questions I asked you? Who was the, uh, the first president that I asked you to hold a press conference on television? Did I ask that yet? The first the president to hold uh, a press conference on television was, uh, was Kennedy. There you go. Very good, Manny. He was the first one. He also was the first uh, to do a debate on television, and we could talk about the significance of that debate and how. Yeah, because the way he dressed, he 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 dressed in a black suit for a black and white television, and Nixon dressed in a white suit. And he looked like a bobbing head. Well, it's interesting because the people who watched that debate thought that Kennedy had won. The people who listened to that debate thought Nixon. that Nixon had won. And today we see that conservative views are prominent on, on radio. radio. Yeah. Yeah, because Nixon was seen uh, cleaning his brow with sweat. Well, right, he was sweating sweat. and he, Therefore he, had, he, sounded he had a dark uh, beard. Yeah. yeah, he hadn't shaved. No, he had shaved. He just, it was a five o'clock shadow. That means he didn't shave. Oh, come on. Okay. Jeez. Right, here's the other question that we haven't answered yet, and I'll give some more, and then we'll move on to the second party system. So the next question we asked was, who is the only president to be, and the only president who will ever be elected four times? Who is that? It's FDR. Right. FDR. And FDR, that's now been taken away because of the 22nd Amendment. So unless we amend the Constitution, you get to be president twice, and only twice. Is, uh, is there a rule that you can, can you serve one term and then stay out a term and then run again? Okay, you know what, that's an excellent question. There was one president that did that. Grover Cleveland. Cleveland, Harris, and Cleveland. When you go yeah. through the list of the presidents, you have to have the Cleveland, Harris, and Cleveland. And Cleveland was the last conservative Democrat president. But he, he was, was also gold... before. He was also before the writing of the twenty fifth. So what? Yeah, but he was he 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 won, then he lost, and he won again. He was a gold okay, Democrat. Okay, so right now could uh, okay Barack Obama can't run again because he served two terms. But, but can uh, I think he could because it has to be consecutive. It limits consecutive terms. So I think technically anyone, I'll, I'll double check that. I, I think it's two consecutive yeah. terms. But so Jimmy you know, Carter could run again. Yeah, and with Joe Biden as yeah, vice with person. Joe Biden as his running mate. Right? Yeah. Okay. All right. Continue, and Adam. George W. Bush. If this, I don't think it stops you from running as long as there's that break. Forget it. So. Yeah, that's, I've always I, I I I'm amazed that I haven't gone to research this because I ask myself that question all the time. If you're a one-term guy, can you sit out or not run again or lose and then run again? I think you can. I think you can. Okay. And then do two more terms. Yeah. No, or one more term. Oh, that's another that's another good question. So, and if you do win the second time, can you keep can you run it for re-election? No. That makes sense. You I should would say be able no. to. Two terms. 
All right, go ahead, Adam. So we, we will take a look at that amendment, and uh, we'll come up with an answer, hopefully, before the end of the hour. So we're going to move now to the second-party system, and this is referred to as the error of good feelings starting in 1816 or thereabout. And who is the pr first president now who starts the new Democrat Party, or the uh, we, we use his name when we use the, the word democratic here, but the founder of what some call the modern Democratic Party started with, uh, with, with uh, which, which, which president? Well, in 16, that would be Monroe. 1816, but the Democrat Party was started by Jackson, who was anything but good feelings. Yeah, he was a jackass, and he liked it so much, he kept it as a moniker. To right, this day. right, right, right. So, so just so I give accurate dates, so the era of good feelings uh, continued towards the end of the first party system. And then when Jackson gets elected, uh, you know, have the second party system starting. And let me go through and, and feel free to go back and forth on what we like or not about Jackson. But the, his focus was, and, and many will refer to it as, the modern Democratic Party evolves under Jackson. Uh, so uh, he, he's uh, sort of a reaction uh, to the, because he splits away from the Democrat Republican Party. Yep. Now, we well, my first criticism if I may say so, and it's embarrassing that the Democrats still think this way after all these years, he wanted to get rid of the Elector College. Andrew and, Jackson? Yeah, because he lost in, uh, he lost in 1824. The election went to, to the House. Adams. Right. Yeah. And uh, the president was decided, one got the uh, Secretary of State that. job, and I forgot that person's name. Henry Clay? Henry Clay. I got, or Daniel Webster. Uh, it was a three-party race. Or John C. Calhoun. Those it was Calhoun. The, those were the three leading statesmen. Yeah, Calhoun got then. Secretary of State, Quincy got the presidency, mm -hmm. and Jackson was had to... Livid. Had, was pissed off. So when he got elected later, he tried and tried and tried, and just wasn't having. Adam, take over. <laughs> take over the circus. We're going to talk about what Jackson came up with for this new political party. And uh, this is starting in 1824 is when Jackson becomes the president. And uh, what are his ideals? And the answer is he's really focused on the common man and extending democracy. Uh, because back then there were property restrictions. If you didn't own property, if you weren't, in quotes, a freeholder, a propertied individual who had stake or money in the game, so to speak, then you couldn't vote. So he's interested in having, and you, you guys are going to like this, he wanted judges to be elected, I'm sorry, yeah, elected, not appointed. Mm. He wants to extend the franchise. So, you know, the, the poor... Uh, regular farmers as opposed to just the planters, and they used to distinguish between a farmer versus a planter. Yep. If you're getting your hands dirty, you were a uh, farmer. If you were supervising, and some of the people you were supervising had no choice, but if you were the, the overseer, you were the, uh, the the planter as opposed to the farmer. So he wanted to extend the franchise, extend voting rights. So this is Jefferson, and he succeeded because uh, within by the 1850s, uh, really all the property restrictions were taken out of out of uh, out of yep. state constitutions. So that all white males uh, you know, in the South and in the North, we can talk about who could vote in the North. But uh, pretty much the Jefferson Democrats succeeded in extending democracy or the franchise to all white Americans. Right. He gave less importance to being formally educated, and I don't think he had much of a formal education. So he was more interested in uh, extending uh, you know, freedom, if you will, and democracy to every the common man. Uh, he was interested in having a much stronger presidency. 
and he was less interested in what Congress had to say. And that shows you the other party that was going to be opposed to Jefferson, as we talked about before, the Whig Party. Each of you have mentioned Henry Clay and uh, Webster. So they're more interested in a strong Congress opposing Jackson. And we could talk about presidents today who looked at Jefferson and, um, I'm sorry, who looked at Jackson. And it's interesting which presidents today look at different uh, models and role models, etc. So what else did, uh, did Jackson want to do? Uh, he believed in um, the spoils system, and this can be controversial. He wanted to open up government to the common person who may not have been educated, and he thought that if the government uh, was being controlled by those who were benefiting from the government, uh, we could hold them more accountable, even if you didn't have people who had the formal education. So he wanted to rotate out civil servants by putting in people who were loyal to him. So he emphasized party loyalty, and that has issues of its own when you're putting people in office because of who they support as opposed to what they can do and having it wasn't going to be until the 1880s and we can post about this on, on statutes and stories when we start putting in place some of the civil service reforms that react to and counter wow. some of the patronage or spoil system but now we well, have this spoils yeah, but now, now we, we have, have the deep state which doesn't respond to democratic government and we also have conflict of interest voters in the millions voting for a party to continue sending them checks in the mail right yeah. What else did he believe? He believed that the government would be accountable if uh, people got what they wanted from the government. And, you know, he would have, after an election, uh, large numbers of people, his supporters, float into the White House to celebrate. So he's putting his money where his mouth is. He was supporting the common man. So uh, also laissez-faire economics. We talked about it in prior discussions. Uh, what does that mean? But it's consistent with the view of strict construction. So Jackson did not want a federal bank, and he let the second bank expire. He didn't destroy it. He let it on its own die a, you know, a quiet death. So he vetoed the recharge which would have created the third bank of the United States. He wants government to take a hands-off approach. He's not that in favor of uh, spending money, which is what the Whigs wanted to do, on uh, railroads and banking and economic growth. He's sort of sitting back and letting the things work themselves out on their own. But towards the end of his administration, he does want to see more power, especially power to the president. And we can talk at other nights about the, uh, the South Carolina crisis or the nullification crisis. Because when yeah, he nullified a treaty, a peace treaty with the Indians, correct? I think, I don't know about a peace treaty, but uh, he's probably, the, the, I'll be careful how to describe it, but uh, one of the big criticisms of Jackson is that uh, the Indian Removal Act, right. there were several yeah. of them. Oh, I'm confusing that. That's Trail what I tears. meant. Yeah, the Trail of Tears, so I'm confusing the, that. Okay. The, the, and they referred to themselves as the civilized tribes. These right. were tribes who had treaties, and maybe that's why you talk about treaties. Yes. So then despite the fact that they had treaties going back to Washington, some of these Indian tribes, which I've also posted about on statutes and stories, in fact, the first treaty that we made after the Revolutionary War, George Washington and Henry Knox, was with, uh, was, was with an Indian tribe. So Jackson wanted to get the Indians all the way out west, and uh, it is a bleak moment in, in American history for, for what occurred. Uh, so, you know, that was, and it tells you the contradiction, by the way. So as, as much as he's in favor of democracy, Jackson, he's not for them, not, <laughs> not for Indians. Indians, who were the first Americans. Yes. Yeah. Well, he, he probably didn't see them as other than in barbarians. Indian removal, and a lot of that land was uh, given over to plantations uh, that were worked by slaves. And he, of course, was a, a huge He was a landowner. slave owner, yeah. Huge landowner. Yep. Yes. So the other party that opposes Jackson, and for a while, the 
Jacksonian Democratic Party uh, holds sway. And we can go through the list of presidents who, who subscribe to and follow that uh, Democratic Party. But they were opposed by the Whigs. And I'm going to start asking some questions about the Whibs, Whigs. But the Whigs, and Lincoln was a Whig until he became a Republican. So this, again, is during the second party system, which started in 1824 with Andrew Jackson. So the Whigs are interested in a strong uh, Congress, supremacy of Congress. They favor banking and economic stimulation and protectionism to help manufacturing in America. Uh, their, their constituency is entrepreneurs. And their constituency is the urban middle class, which is emerging. And the reason they chose the Whig name, and maybe that's a good question, why would they choose the name of a Whig for a political party? I think in England, the Whigs were the liberals who were, had similar positions. Very good. So they chose Whigs because, in their mind, the Patriots, so the founding fathers, wore Whigs. So Washington oh, okay. wore a Whig. Okay. So when they take up the name of a Whig, uh, they, they view it as they're fighting for independence and they're seeking independence against Jackson, who's all about democracy. So you've got these interesting dichotomies. Uh, so, so what else can we say? Yeah, that's very helpful for the audience because I always try to uh, figure out what I, I, can I do to memorize. The, the different political affiliations, because I never really understood what you guys just explained, why the Whigs, I, I didn't understand when did the Federalists disappear and the Whigs become... Well, what happened to the Federalists is that in, eight, party. in 1800, Jefferson, who's a Republican Democrat, was elected president. Then he served for eight years, and then James Madison was elected president, and he served for eight years, and then James Monroe who was also the same as Jefferson and Madison, was elected, and he served for another eight years. So the the, the Federalists were out of power for, so long that they just for 24 years. So oh. in 24 is when Jackson uh, won the most electoral co- uh, votes but didn't win a majority, so that was thrown into the House. And it was in 1824 that John Quincy Adams was elected president by the House. And that was what really ticked off Andrew Jackson. So he came back, he was elected in 28 28 and 32, and then his vice president, Martin Van Buren from New York, was elected in 36. And I I lose track of that after that, except that I know... But that's the reason why the Federalists just disappeared. Yeah, the Federalists disappeared because for uh, three presidents, each of them serving two terms, were just dominated. So hooray to the Republicans who survived FDR. James Monroe... (laughs) was almost unanimously elected in 1816 and in 1820. I don't know if you can confirm that, Adam. I think Monroe was almost unanimously elected, or there was nobody running against him. What I can tell you is the only president in terms of the Electoral College who was unanimous in the Electoral College was Washington. Yep, okay. Although you may be right during during the era of good feelings that nobody ran against Monroe. He went unopposed. Right. But he did not get a unanimous just to maintain that principle. Right. That there were still votes against him in the Electoral College. Yeah, so, so that period, that was three uh, presidents from Virginia, and they dominated for those 24 years. A lot could be done in those 24 years. And they, so, yeah, so they really controlled it. Uh, I mean, I think the only example in modern day, obviously, was uh, when Franklin Roosevelt and Truman held the presidency for how many? Uh, 16, 20, Four, six times. Yeah, 16. 24 years. Uh, and, for example, in England, the Tory, the Conservative Party, won the election in, in 1979 with Margaret Thatcher. And it wasn't until... 1997, so 18 years later, that Labor Party, led by Tony Blair, 
New Labour was able to win a, a general election in England. So and had to govern as a conservative because, well, sort of, of, the, sort because of, of the invasion. Sort of, sort of. Uh, so that's, I mean, so that's that's a that's a good point. Twenty-four years is a long time in politics. And that, by the way, is where Schlesinger gets his scientific idea that uh, when oh, the pendulums no. swing back and forth, on average, it's 16 and a half years. Oh, no, that's too scientific. Because it was such a long period that yep. the Democrat-Republicans under Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, um, continued to hold power. Right. But let me ask you some more trivia, trivia questions, and then we'll flesh out the balance of the second period or the, the second party system. So here's some more questions for you. And this is uh, the clue is this is one of the presidents that uh, we're talking about now. So which president was the founder who bought Florida? And I'll give you several questions. He bought Florida. He also is the only president to have a foreign country's capital named after him. Who was this president? Franklin Pierce. No, 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 no. The capital of a foreign country in Africa is... Yeah, Monrovia, Monroe. Monroe, so Monroe, that's right. So Monroe. Oh, so that was after Pierce. No, 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 before. Monroe was elected in uh, 1816. Very and, good. So, and he had been a junior officer with George Washington. That's why he was crossing the Delaware. Ah, that's how this show started. Mo yeah, Monroe was 1816-1820. So, you know why you know why I say Pierce because That was the later. Abstin manifesto where they offered 120 million for Cuba. That was later. That, that was later. That secretive uh, document. No, M Monroe was, was a member of the American Manumission Society, which means freeing the slaves. And so uh, the capital of Liberia is called Monrovia after him. That's right. And here's something about his personality. He preferred not to be called Mr. President. He preferred to be called Colonel Monroe because that's what he was known as during the uh, Revolutionary With War Washington, or at various right. points, maybe the, uh, the War of 1812. So Colonel Monroe. And he's also the president who purchased the Florida. Wow. There you go. Who did he purchase it from? I'm, I'm not certain, but I would think it's Spain. Yep, I would think so, yeah. Check on that. So yeah. let me give you some more questions. So uh, flipping around with other presidents, this is the same time period. Uh, so this wasn't when he was alive, but there was a time when we had much bigger denominations on bills. Who was on the five thousand dollar bill? Which is a tough question. So I'll give you some more. Ed Vidal. No, I won't know anything. So tie these together and you'll get it. No, I thought you were on the five thousand. No, no, no. Okay, so he was on the five thousand dollar bill when we had a five thousand dollar bill after he had died. He was. Cousins twice removed with George Washington, so that probably tells you what state he's from. And let's see, according to Jefferson, this founding father was, quote, the greatest man in the world. James Madison. James Madison. So James Madison was on the $5,000 bill. He uh, preferred, uh, let's see, Jefferson really thought highly of him because they worked closely together. Yep. And he was uh, the first cousin, or, I'm sorry, I was a half first cousin twice removed from Washington. Yeah, all those uh, Virginia gentry were related. And his nicknames, the father of the Constitution, we yes. know that, and his little majesty, and uh, here's some quotes about his size. He weighed, he was five, point, five feet, four inches tall. Oh, my God. Didn't even so weigh 100 pounds. Didn't weigh 100 pounds. Wow. He was a slight guy. People were a lot li livelier then. You know, they had to walk around and ride horses and stuff. How the hell did he get, get up on a horse? All right, so continuing with the end of the second party system. So this is the Whigs versus the Democratic Republicans. So what were the cleavages or the distinctions between the two parties? So the Whigs believed in the American system. And what is the American system? That's tariffs. That's a Bank of the United States and a um, you know, internal improvements and a strong Congress, whereas Jackson believes in a strong Congress 
and uh, opposed the American system. So there's some differences during that period of time. And uh, there were only two Whigs that get elected presidents. And I'm going to point out to you that the Whigs had a lot of bad luck. So when I say bad luck, what would unfortunately would happen to Whig presidents for various reasons that Di- were outside of the health issues? Died in office, caught a cold and died. Died in office. Harrison, Tippecanoe, and Tyler, too. So that's right. So William Henry Harrison becomes, and he's the first Whig president. He dies in office within basically 30 days. And he's interesting because this is another political family. So the Adams family, we talked about John Adams, we talked about his son John Quincy Adams, and uh, the grandson, and I have to double-check the exact relationship, but the historians in that family. Yep. Uh, so that's the Adams family out of Massachusetts. But you have the Harrison family out of Virginia. And President William Henry Harrison, who was the ninth president, was the son of one of the founding fathers who signed the uh, Declaration of Right, Declaration of uh, Independence from Virginia. So that was his uh, father, Benjamin Harrison. So Benjamin Harrison was the uh, was, was one of the found in the founding generation, and his son becomes William Henry Harrison. And I'll make sure that I have the family relationship right. Yeah, the great the great grandfather of another Benjamin Harrison. The president. So here's the question. Uh, what's important about the Harrison family, and this has only happened once in American history? Benjamin Harrison was elected in 1888, one term from Indiana. And what is the relationship between William Henry Harrison and Benjamin Harrison? That's father-son? So, no. No? The only father and sons were John Quincy and John, and then the Bushes. And the Bushes, really? That's the only father Harrison, and son elected. So the grandfather. So, so it's oh. grandfather and grandson have, were presidents? So you start with the first, Benjamin Harrison, who yep. was signer of the Declaration. Right. He's related to William Henry Harrison, who's the ninth president. And then the ninth president has Benjamin Harrison, who's named after his great-grandfather. Okay. So that's how you have Benjamin Benjamin. Okay. Oh, but, William so, in the middle. Okay, So, the, but, but as far as presidential... Power, there is no, there is no distinction whatsoever. In other words, there's still. Um, never mind. I'm connecting it's, dots. It's at, the at, same you, Harrison family, Manny, and this is the only time that you've skipped a generation and had, or skipped generations and had the same family in the Oval Office like that, skipping not father son, but uh, grandfather and grandson. Okay. So you're right. I'm looking at my Declaration of Independence, and Benjamin Harrison signed. Right under Thomas Jefferson. He's from Virginia. Okay. So that's a little-known fact, that that Harrison family out of Virginia produced a signer of the Declaration and two presidents. Incredible. Yep. And the second president was from Indiana. And he was a Republican. Benjamin Harrison, right. who was the great-grandson, was from uh, was a Republican. And when we say Republican now, that's going to get into the, the third period or the third right. party system. Mm-hmm. All right, so what else can we talk about the Whig presidents? Because there were only a handful of them after William Henry Harrison dies and John Tyler takes over. And he's a controversial guy when you talk about John Tyler. And we won't go into too much detail about him today. But the, what else can we tell you about the Harrisons? Uh, so you got the first example of someone dying in office. And then who were the other two Whig presidents? And you have another death in this process. So who are the other two Whig presidents? Zachary Taylor? Go ahead. I don't know. I, um... Taylor and Fillmore. Ah, and Millard Fillmore. So this is how we we round out the list of of Whig presidents, and there were only four. And what's interesting here is that Taylor also dies. 
he was only in office for a little over a year, from March of 1849 to 1850, and that's how Fillmore from New York becomes president. So those, that's the four Whig presidents, but only two of them were elected president. Unbelievable. And what were they? What was their claim to fame, and what were they planning to well, do as presidents had they not died? <laughs> well, they were planning to create uh, national improvements, increase tariffs, and uh, have a more active federal government generally. That's right, and, and, and here's the irony. So you have two weak presidents who die in office, the first ever who was William Henry Harrison. Lincoln, and I don't believe in conspiracies, but we're just connecting dots here, Lincoln was a Whig until he became a Republican. Right. And he also died, so that's why some people talk about the curse of the Whigs. Oh, come on. But, well, uh, so that, but, but there was one good uh, president there, a uh, Democrat who was elected in 1844, and he pledged to serve one term, and James Polk... And he negotiated to bring in the great state of Texas into the Union. Historians, generally, from what I've read, rank Polk at the very top. Not the top, but near the very top, because he kept his promises. Uh, I think you're right, he only served one term. Right. And, uh, you know, he was not a controversial guy, so he accomplished a lot. And, and Polk is one of the presidents that a lot of the historians like, and a lot of Americans don't even know who he is. Yeah, in- incredible. And uh, I think history is always recognized as Lincoln— as the one who suggested that Texas join the Union. No, no, no. Lincoln was against the Mexican War because he, he saw it as a way of expanding the territory for the slave states. Lincoln and Grant were both against the, the Mexican War and the annexation of Texas. Wow. Yes. How about that? Wow. And today Lincoln is revered in Texas together with General Sherman, the first military governor of Texas. Unbelievable. So I was deceived in that regard. Yeah. Now, Lincoln did not want the Mexican War. He saw it as a way for the slave states to expand their territory. The Civil War was fought about whether slavery would go into the West. Well, west of the the, the the Rio Grande. Or the Mississippi. No, no, not not into Mexico. West into Kansas and the Well, the Mexican War was about dividing what ultimately divided Mexico down the middle— East and west west of the Rio Grande. Yeah, acquiring Texas and then going on to the Pacific and Manifest Destiny. Uh Uh-oh, don't get me started. All right, uh, Adam, please continue. We're going to give some more presidential trivia from the founding generation, so that's the clue. So who, and don't answer because we'll do them all together, but who was the father of the Declaration of Independence? He's referred to as Long Tom. He is also, let's see, one of the most learned men of his age. He was referred to as a walking library. In fact, he sold, after the White House burnt down, he sold, let me get the number right, 10,000 books to the government, to the federal government, to restart the Library of Congress after the British burned down the executive mansion in 1814. And he invented swivel desks because he was also an inventor. So who is the president that we just discussed? And and he used the proceeds of that sale to buy uh, French wines. He had a a good acquired taste because he spent so much time in France. So this is obviously Jefferson, who had all these books, and was a reader, uh, was an inventor. He was the president and started, I believe, the University of Virginia. Here's more information about Jefferson. Let's see. So he was also referred to as the philosopher of democracy, the sage of Monticello, the man of the people, although Jackson would want to claim that he was the man of the people. What else do I have for... Well, you know, the Library of Congress... Slick Willie wants to be the man of the people. No, no. The Library of Congress, uh, they they have uh, Thomas is their artificial intelligence source, like Ask Thomas. It's Thomas Jefferson. That's right. So he's uh, 
uh, he's the hero of the Library of Congress. And one thing that I think a lot of people respect, including me, if you go to visit his grave, and I'm assuming it's at Monticello, uh, it does not say he was a president. You know, if I were president, that would be on my, <laughs> my grave. But instead, this is what it says. Here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence. They don't call it the Declaration of Independence, the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute for, sorry, the Statute of Virginia mm-hmm. for Religious Freedom, which was one of the first examples of protecting religious rights and keeping government, and we can talk about how, how it works, but uh, acknowledgement of uh, religious freedoms and the father of the University of Virginia. So that's what it says on his, on his headstone. Mm-hmm. Be- he didn't say the purchaser of the uh, Louisiana Purchase. There was a lot to put on that tombstone. It wouldn't all fit. So here's some more information about Jefferson. He was only 33 when he wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And here we're going to segue. When our alienable rights come from our creator, God. Creator, yes. Here's one of my favorite uh, pseudonyms or eponyms, whatever you want to call it. So who was the president who was referred to? He was a diplomat. He was a delegate to the Continental Congress, to the first Congress, and to the second Continental Congress. Obviously, he became a president. He's referred to as the Colossus of American Independence, the Duke of Braintree, and his rotundity. Adams. Manny, do you agree? His Uh, rotundity? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I don't agree because it's victorious. Vidal. But no, I really don't have the faintest idea. I, I couldn't agree if I wanted Braintree to. is a giveaway because he was from Braintree, Massachusetts. Yeah, but you'd have to know where the hell Braintree, Massachusetts is. It's a suburb of Boston. Well, I haven't been to Boston. Near Milton. Jeez, I don't map quest that north, okay? Now, I found this is not a president, but I'm going to be able to refer to a president with the question. So the answer is going to be a president, and this is a president who's known for business. So this is a quote about Hamilton, because you all know that I love Hamilton. So who said, when America ceases to remember his greatness, America will no longer be great. So what president, and this is in the 1900s, said that uh, when he, meaning Hamilton... Gotta be Theodore. So who was the, recognized as the... There's a great quote about about this president, about he was the president of American business, and this is, again, in the 19th uh, Theodore Roosevelt? So CC, the two initials are C and C. Oh, God. His quote is, the future, the... Um, Calvin Coolidge. Is oh, the do-nothing the, Coolidge. No, he was great. The, the business of America is business. Who said that? Which president? Calvin Coolidge. Coolidge. Silent Cal, the business of America, I used to quote that in debate tournaments, the business of America is business. Calvin Coolidge, and he was a fan of Hamilton because he said, when America, when America ceases to remember his greatness, America will no longer be great. So he appreciated Hamilton. Right. Wow. So a couple more questions, and you're going to very easily know who this is. And then we'll get back to the third period or the third shift in politics and political parties. So we, we can't leave out uh, you know, where it all started on President's Day. So who was the presiding officer of the Continental Convention. He was a distiller, a planter, a real estate investor. Of course, he was the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. He was the first president. And let's give you some interesting facts about him. Let's see. He was a colonial officer in the British Army. He was during the War of the Spanish, I'm sorry, the French and Indian War, 1763. He he fights with the British. That's that's one of the reasons he knew how to win against the British. So here's a memorable quote about him. First in war, and we know this from William Henry Lee, we talked about it before, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. So that's all George Washington. All right, so we've talked about some of the early founding fathers and the first presidents, and we're going to move now from the end of the Democrat-Republicans and Jackson versus the Whigs with 
Webster and with, with Clay into the period when you have the third party system. And this is the period that starts with the modern Republican Party. So it, it begins to take shape and crystallize in 1854, but they don't win their first election until Lincoln. And we talked, I think it was last week, I lose track of time, the 37th Congress under Lincoln. So the third party system is controlled by what political party? The Republicans. The modern Republican Party starts in that time period, 1854, gets elected into presidency with Lincoln in 1860. This is the third party system. Uh, Lincoln's party is interested in nationalism and modernization, improved race relations. Uh, also for the Republican Party, the third party system, we have the laws that we talked about, I think it was last week. So the yep. Continental Railroad. We have... Um, Land-grant colleges. Land-grant colleges. What are some of the other programs that if we were all listening from a week or two ago? Oh, my God. <laughs> those, are, those are the two I always remember. When it comes to land, not just land-grant colleges. Oh, the Homestead Act. Giving land to people to move west and yep. uh, extend agriculture and yep. uh, economy and, and business uh, all the way west uh, with, with that railroad. Yep, Homestead Act. Homestead Act. So those were some of the big acts that were passed by the Republicans. Uh, so let's now skip because we're running out of time. To Imagine they try to do that today. What do we think <laughs> the fourth political system or the fourth party system was? So how did the Republican system end to go into the fourth system? And let me give you some background on that one. And the quick answer is this is, you know, after the Republicans under Lincoln, you start getting, and I'm shuffling around looking at my notes, and uh, let's see what I wanted to tell you. I think it started, the next system started in 1896 with the election of McKinley. There yep. you go. And that gets quite interesting. And Mc- well, that's because we, uh, uh, McKinley answers, goes into Cuba. No, no, no. That was before Cuba. No, McKinley goes into Cuba. Yeah, but he got elected before Cuba. That, that wasn't... No, but it, it rep- isn't it representative of the fourth? No, he was... Uh, this was a, acting He aggressive. beat William Jennings Bryant for the first time. Thank God for that. Yeah, so he was, it was a real uh, 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 campaign between populists and the gold, and Bryant wanted to inflation. He wanted to go off the gold standard and have inflation. He also wanted the income tax. And McKinley, yeah, and McKinley, he got, he won, he got a lot of his things later in 1913, but McKinley was a gold Republican, uh, and uh, he got, he got, he, 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 uh, he got a lot of, he appealed to a lot of working people in the terms of, you know, not necessarily factory workers, but business people, small shopkeepers Well, which one of the two like in that. that campaign was asking for the dollar to be uh, compared to uh, European currencies, to create Europe. value instead of the gold? It must, have been, it must have been William Jennings Bryant. William Jennings Bryant, in 1896, his big speech was, you shall not crucify us on a cross of gold. Because right, he so wanted to get he away. Wanted to he wanted paper. Currency. He wanted paper currency. And he got what he wanted. Eventually, Eventually. he did. Yes. And we and it ruined us. Yes. Financially. And you know the Wizard of Oz. Oz is the abbreviation for ounce. So the Wizard of Oz came from Kansas, which was a very populous state in those days. And uh oh. Sounds like dogs are coming after us. There's nothing like a good German Shepherd. But absolutely, that, Donald J. Trump. But 1896 was McKinley versus Bryant, and Bryant wanted inflation. And, and uh, he got it. But he just got not... it with the progressives, <laughs> uh, the Federal Reserve Bank. He got it 50 years later, but he got it. Well, okay. Yeah. So how do we end this show today, Adam? What's your parting shot? 
Okay, the parting shot is coming from my dog as my wife tries to quiet him down. Oh, okay. So we're going to just quickly summarize the fourth party system, which uh, people refer to as the progressive era and the fourth party system or the gilded age, if you want to talk about the end of the third party system and the fourth party system, uh, sort of uh, more expansion as the economy is growing with more science and regulations and regulation of corporations. Uh, going into World War One, and the last to uh, round out the list, the fifth party system is the New Deal Democrats under Franklin Roosevelt, and we could debate at a later night about what is the sixth system, the sixth party system, which is where we are now, and who's dominating now the sixth party system, and that is definitely subject to debate. But gentlemen, it was a pleasure celebrating President's Day with everybody, and uh, feel free to go to statutesandstories.com and uh, read all about it. Well, thank you very much. It thank was, uh, you. It was a very entertaining uh, and appropriate one hour so uh we'll talk again good night everybody Take good care. night thank you that's the end of our all right president's day edition our president's day edition i hope you enjoyed this last three hours with uh, statues and yep. stories and of course our no, regular concrete I'm, conservative thank you for facebook live we don't do that often on facebook live but uh we wanted since we were doing trivia we thought maybe some of you guys would want to ask questions and we see that nobody asked a freaking question so that's cool because I didn't have any answers to any of the questions. So uh, I don't. I feel less uh, less incompetent today because I didn't. I learned a lot, basically. You did. And from you, Victorious Vidal. <laughs> no, don't give me that name. You uh, won the trivia contest, so it was apropos for the show. So stay free, my friends, and we'll we'll be back with the Concrete Conservative of WSQF. Blink Radio. Do we have where Chris we Ann Hall once, podcast? Yes, I said it. Now? Blink twice. Yes, you missed it. Chris Ann Hall now. So, we are now off the air. See you later, folks. I believe you're going to get some music, and stay tuned for the Chris Ann Show later this evening. Stay free, my friends. See you later. USQF. Key Biscayne, Miami Beach, and Miami. Blink Radio.